President Joe Biden signed a new executive order last week on modernizing the regulatory review process. The White House says its proposals will update policies that have not changed in more than two decades, while making just the whole process more equitable and inclusive, their words. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's begin with how they plan to modernize something that probably could stand a dose of modernization. Yeah, the uh, executive order issued last week follows up on a presidential memorandum Biden signed on his first day in office on modernizing regulatory review. So this is really a two-year kind of process coming to fruition here. The EO aims to fold more considerations for uh, underserved communities, the White House says, into the regulatory review process and also make changes to how agencies measure the cost-benefit analysis of their actions. Um, It also aims to reduce the number of regulatory actions brought into OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, by raising the threshold for regulations that require a rigorous cost-benefit analysis, raises that up from 100 million to 200 million. And the White House estimates that would actually bring that down, the number of uh, impact analysis, by about 20% um, compared to recent years. So that's kind of the summary, high-level summary, of what the the White House is looking to do with this really in-the-weeds regulatory review process. Got it. So raising the threshold that requires review then eases the workload on the reviewers, but then it doubles in some ways the burden on industry or those regulated parties that don't get the benefit of a full cost-benefit analysis. It seems like that could be the effect here. Uh, You know, the White House says that it will produce a more efficient, effective regulatory review process, protecting people from harmful toxins and things like that. So that's kind of the other view. Uh, improving rail safety, they included uh, OIRA Administrator Richard uh, Revez included that in his blog post. Obviously, we just had that situation in East Palestine, so they're pointing to that situation uh, as as sort of an example of of how this whole regulatory review process could improve things going forward. Yeah, that's a difficult one to follow because there were already rules in place for transporting chemicals, for how rails are supposed to operate. And as far as we know, that was we don't really know what happened there. So it's interesting that they point to that as something that requires, I guess, more regulation of what chemicals, of of transportation modes, of railroads. I guess we'll wait to see then. And there is also some guidance, and this gets to the heart of it also, promoting more public participation in the regulatory process. Yeah, that's actually a big piece of this. In a memo to regulatory policy officers at agencies, Revez, the OIRA director, talks about different actions agencies can take to promote more public participation in that whole process. You know, there's public meetings, of course. He also points to the need to use easy to use under easy to understand language, the use of online and alternative platforms and media to reach communities that might be affected by regulation, and plain language guides and expanding the use of public engagement tools like requests for information early on in the planning process. One of the issues that has been discussed by the people that participate in this whole regulatory process, and that's a lot of people across government, almost every agency in some sense, is how to deal with automated comments that come in from bots. And under standard rules, they all count as a comment, and that can skew what maybe the perception of reaction is to a given rule. Does the new plan address that particular issue? Yeah, Biden's directive actually requires the administrator of OIRA to come up with guidance or tools 
that will help agencies deal with automated comments from bots. You know, several years ago, there was a Federal Communications Commission rule that received 24 million comments. This was the net neutrality rulemaking back in 2017. And the study later found that millions of those comments were fake, including ones that were deliberately filed using other people's email addresses, uh, you know, those of senators, journalists, and even dead people. And uh, obviously, these automated campaigns are intended to disrupt the public comment process. So OIRA is being tasked with taking that on. Yes, that's that's an issue. I mean, the rulemaking experts will tell you that rulemaking is not a plebiscite. That is to say, if there's 100,000 comments for something and 20,000 against it, that doesn't mean you necessarily go with the rule because of the 100,000 comments are designed to inform rulemaking, but not vote on it, really. But still, when you get a million, it can shut down the ability of people to comment, and they're undifferentiated. It's like many years ago, offices used to get flooded with postcards and letters that were written, you know, and identical. Now it's electronic means has magnified the ability to do that. Any reaction so far from industry or any of the affected groups or government activists? I mean, who's who's talking about this? It's been pretty muted so far, but there's a public comment period here where I'm sure we will see a lot of those interested parties from industry and activist groups and others uh, put their two cents in. Former White House officials have called it a quote-unquote thoughtful job from the Biden administration here. That's the words of Jason Furman, who was the chair of Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Also, John Graham, who served as OIRA administrator under President George W. Bush, said he thought it was a pretty thoughtful process. He says the biggest challenge will be the new guidance on distributional equity in rulemaking and how that will require new data collection by federal agencies, as well as training of agency staff and contractors on how to undertake this equity-weighted analyses. So he says that will be one of the big challenges here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming 
after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.